with me in the studio today. Will, glad to have you. Always good to be here, Elwood. We have a good question for you today. Uh, many people ask this question. What is the difference between rabbinic and biblical Judaism? It's a very good question, and uh, the answer to that is very, very important for understanding Judaism today. Biblical Judaism would be that religion that is based on the Old Testament. You might refer to it as Mosaism, really, because it was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. It involves uh, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, the laws given in the first five books, the sacrificial system, uh, and the rest of the revelation of the Old Testament, Biblical Judaism. Now, Rabbinic Judaism really is derives from Biblical Judaism, but must be distinguished. Uh, from Biblical Judaism, and it's striking to know that there are many Jewish scholars who will make this clear distinction, too. This is not just an observation from a Christian point of view. Now, what do I mean by that? When the Jewish people return from captivity under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, they reworked and reformed and reorganized the Biblical Judaism of the Old Testament to meet the new realities of life in Judea following the captivity. Very key in this uh, was the role of Ezra, uh, who is mentioned in the Bible and is uh, held up in Judaism as something of a second Moses. It, it was he that uh, supposedly brought the Torah from Babylon. Uh, he applied the Torah. We read that in Nehemiah very clearly. He preached and, and applied the Torah to needs. And uh, there began to develop a, a, a group of laws that were uh, initiated with Ezra and some of his followers that were interpretations of uh, the written law. And this came to be called the oral law. And this oral law was passed down orally down through the times of the intertestamental period into Jesus' day. Jesus referred to it as the tradition of the fathers. And it was still oral, even in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. That is rabbinic Judaism. Based on the Bible, but with these many laws and ramifications and elaborations passed down orally. Uh, finally, it was written down about 200 A.D. And in a future broadcast, Elwood, I think we're going to talk about uh, the writing down of that oral law, which is, is basically the Talmud today. But it was still oral in the days of the New Testament, and uh, that's very important to understand. Are there differences between rabbinic and biblical Judaism? Yes, there are. Uh, rabbinic Judaism was heavily influenced by Pharisaism and the teachings of the Pharisees. Obviously, rabbinic Judaism has no place for a temple because the temple was destroyed. In biblical Judaism, you have that emphasis on the temple. In biblical Judaism, you have uh, uh, clear statements in the Old Testament that salvation is free, it's by faith, uh, by believing in God's promised Messiah. In rabbinic Judaism, uh, there's a more of a structured emphasis on law and obedience and the commandments as the way to salvation, which was the uh, teaching of the Pharisees. But the key difference is in this oral law. The oral law finds no place in, in biblical Judaism. It's not there. It can't be found. God gave his law at Sinai, and that was finished. But in rabbinic Judaism, you have this idea that, that, that there was a whole host 
of oral laws that were supposedly given by God at Sinai and were passed down orally. That simply cannot be found in the Old Testament. And thus, though there's a similarity, there's also a great distinction between biblical and rabbinic Judaism. All right, the place that the Lord Jesus had in fulfilling biblical Judaism, uh, relate that to rabbinic Judaism. And uh, is rabbinic Judaism an extension of biblical Judaism? How do you interpret that? An extension, but also a changing, because Jesus uh, uh, came to fulfill the Messianic prophecies, and he did. Rabbinic Judaism rejected that concept and developed the idea of what I call a military messiah, that when the messiah comes, he will uh, defeat the enemies of, uh, of, of Israel and ride in as a king and a conqueror. Because Jesus did not fulfill that expectation of rabbinic Judaism, he was rejected. So he is the messiah of Israel, but rabbinic Judaism, down to today, has continued to reject that idea of a suffering messiah. I see. So when the Lord Jesus spoke of the traditions of the fathers, that was rabbinic, and that was what he was rejecting in favor of the Word of God. Absolutely. He says you make void the Word of God by your tradition. In other words, you make void biblical Judaism by rabbinic Judaism. Thank you, Will. We'll... We hear uh, Jewish people talk about the Shema. Many Christians don't understand what this is all about. Uh, give us some information about the Shema. The Shema is the most basic prayer and confession uh, in Judaism. It's both a prayer, but it's also a uh, confessional statement, a statement of faith. Uh, the word Shema actually is the word hear in Hebrew, H-E-A-R, and it's the first word of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. In Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. So that first Hebrew word, Shema, is the word that is translated in Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear. And, and really, this is... Um, Moses saying to the children of Israel, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our God, is one Jehovah. Three times a day, an Orthodox religious Jewish person will say the Shema, morning prayer, uh, afternoon prayer, and evening prayer. Every synagogue service, uh, you will hear Jewish people saying it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, emphasizing uh, the unity of the Godhead. Now, answer this question for us, because this really basically, I think, is uh, the controversy that rises out of this verse between Christianity and Judaism. Does the Shema teach that there is one God? Well, it teaches that there is one God, but that unity is a special type of unity. And uh, a lot of Jewish people will say this absolutely forbids the Trinity, absolutely forbids more than one person in the Godhead. But when you examine that word one, which is the Hebrew word echad, that is used here in Deuteronomy 6, 4, where God is called one Lord, Adonai Achad. And you examine that reference, uh, that word, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you find that, yes, it means unity 
but a special kind of unity. Now, what do I mean by that? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the word echad is used in the following way. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The word one there is the word echad. Oftentimes this word achad, as you trace it through the Hebrew Scriptures, is actually expressing a compound unity, where there is a oneness, but a oneness made up of different compound parts. Here we find that Adam and Eve were one flesh. They continued to exist as separate persons and individuals, yet God said because of their marriage, they were one flesh. Now here's a unity that is actually what we call a compound unity, uh, a unity that is made up of, uh, of different parts. In the book of Joshua, we read uh, one bunch of grapes were carried uh, by the spies back into the land. Excuse me, that's in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. It was one bunch of grapes. Obviously, there is a number of uh, individual items within that one bunch. And so echad uh, expresses a compound unity. And uh, there's nothing inconsistent in our faith as believers uh, that uh, Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. There's nothing inconsistent with this verse because this is expressing the compound unity of the Godhead. Uh, there is one God. Christians are monotheists just like Jews are monotheists. But God is so great, His unity is made up of a compound unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when Jewish people from the Shema say to us as Christians, you worship three gods, and we sometimes hear that, uh, that is not consistent uh, with what the Shema is teaching. Really. Certainly the Shema allows for a compound unity. It cannot be used to disprove the biblical, I started to say the New Testament, but really the biblical conception of the triune Godhead because it's not just taught in the New Testament. Amazingly, I would, it's also taught in the Old Testament. For example, uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16, here is the Messiah speaking, and he says this, uh, Come ye near unto me, hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. Here is an individual speaking who has existed from the beginning. Uh, he, he uses the word I to describe himself. And then he concludes the verse by saying, And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. It's amazing. I don't think many Jewish people even notice this verse often. Here is the eternal one speaking, and he says the Lord God has sent him, and the Lord God's spirit has sent him. So here is an eternal person speaking about Yahweh, or the Lord God sending him, and also God's spirit. Here embedded within the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures is a reference to the triune Godhead. Interestingly, Will, and this uh, raises a question that I'm often asked by uh, Christian people, why don't the Jewish people see this? Because it is there. 
it is there, but uh, so oftentimes the prophets are not really read by many Jewish people. I even know many rabbis who say, well, we spend most of our time in the first five books. We don't really read much in the prophets. And the message of the Messiah, to use a modern vernacular, really gets heavy in the, in, in, in the prophetical books. Uh, certainly, uh, the concept of the Messiah is taught all the way through Scripture, but it really gets strong in the prophetic books. And furthermore, I don't think many Jewish people ever stop to really investigate the idea of the unity of God. It's possible to have a unity with compound parts, and that never really uh, crosses their mind. It was Maimonides, the great Jewish scholar in the Middle Ages, who used a different word for one, Yahid which means an absolute singularity. And he applied that to the Godhead, that, that Jewish belief is absolute singularity. But Yahid is not the word that is used in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's Echad, a compound oneness. Do you feel that Maimonides was reacting to Christianity? Absolutely, because he was living a thousand years after Jesus came and after the Christian message had gone out and he wanted to oppose that message in the strongest way possible. Yes, okay, thank you from the Friends of Israel weekend, where the news is always the good news of the Messiah. You have been listening to Dr. Elwood McQuaid and the Friends of Israel weekend. Today's broadcast has been sponsored by the Friends of Israel, who bring you this program each week at the same time. If you have questions, if there is a burden on your heart, or if you have prayer requests, remember that we're your friends and write to us at Friends of Israel, Box 908, Belmar, New Jersey, 08099. That's Box 908, Belmar, B-E-L-L-M-A-W-R, New Jersey, 08099. Or call our toll-free number, 800-257-7843. That's 800-257-7843. And be sure to join us at the same time on this station next week. Till then, from Friends of Israel Weekend, Shalom.